Good morning, Groton Bible Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. We are so glad that you are here with us this morning. It is a little bit different, as you might notice, if you're here in person. I am not here physically with you. My, uh, uh, someone in, in my house earlier this week actually tested positive for COVID. And so even though we're all symptom-free right now, we, I'm, I, my wife and I have been vaccinated. I've gotten only negative tests. We decided to do this um, just as, a, uh, as our course of action. And so today is also a little bit different because as you heard earlier, we launched into a new series. And, and so today we're, we're answering the question, the first question out of our four tough questions, which is, can there be only one true religion? Is there only one way to God is another way of putting it. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves and really anchoring for the most part in John 14, 6 and just dissecting and analyzing that together as we pose that question. If you're new to the church, if you find yourself here because a friend invited you, we just want to say we're so glad that you're here um, and we hope, you, uh, we hope you feel welcome. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word together, to talk about, uh, God, what we believe is your truth, Lord, for our lives. And so we ask that you would soften our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us, Lord, that we would be challenged and encouraged, God, by our time this morning. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. John, I was about to jump right into John 14, 6. Let's start with some stats. Uh, State of Theology Survey, every, every couple of years, goes out and they talk with thousands of people. And it, the, most recently, they went out and they asked people questions about God. Some of them were Christian, many of them weren't. And what they found is that 60% of people, of Americans, broadly speaking, believe that everyone, all forms of worship, were acceptable to God. And what's interesting is that 48% of evangelical Christians, people identified as evangelical, and you're like, well, what does that mean? An evangelical classically is someone who believes the Bible is true, who believes Jesus uh, actually rose from the dead historically and believes that the cross is salvific. That people who identify as evangelical also believe that God accepts all forms of worship. That every religion is acceptable pleasing to God. And so our question this morning is, is that the case? And as Christians, what we want to do is we want to go to the word and specifically we want to look at what Jesus has to say. And so that's why we're going to find ourselves in John 14 verse 6. And this is a short verse that packs a mighty punch. Here's what Jesus says. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we're going to break that down because Jesus has really four things that he says about himself in this verse. And the first one is that I am the way. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, I am a way. He doesn't say, I am a truth. He doesn't say, I am a life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And there's a difference there in category. 
What does it mean for Jesus to say he is the way and not merely a way? Well, in our culture, we've come to embrace what we can really sum up in the category of postmodernism. I'm going to explain a little bit about what that word means, postmodernism. What does it mean to be postmodern? Postmodernism, if you were to summarize it very briefly, is the belief in relative meaning and truth. That's a hypersimplification. And if you go back in history, you see lots of different historians and philosophers around 100 years ago, uh, writers, novelists, uh, uh, people across the academic spectrums who began to embrace this idea that because everyone has a different lens, that because you see things differently and experience the world differently from me, that the way, that the way what things mean are different to you than they are for me. That truth can be different for you than it is for me because we see the world through different lenses. That's why in our culture, you have people who say things who have to apologize very, very quickly because even though they didn't mean to say something offensive in a postmodern culture, it doesn't matter what you meant. All that matters is what people heard. Meaning is no longer located in what the author wanted to say. Meaning is located in what the reader chooses to interpret. Those are facets of the postmodern culture. Meaning is relative based on your lens. Truth is relative based on your perspective. Now you may scoff at that a little bit, but we see ourselves uh, kind of uh, uh, participating in postmodern culture quite a bit if we actually think through it. For instance, if you've ever found yourself watching two people argue or disagree, and even though it was civil, it got really heated, and you thought to yourself, wait a second, let's just agree to disagree. That's the mantra of the postmodern world. Agree to disagree. Can't we all just get along? It's not necessarily bad, by the way. Another thing, if you ever found yourself making a statement or listening to someone making a factual claim, but they begin that claim with the phrase, this is, this is a huge postmodern phrase, I feel like. And then they go on to say something that's factual. Now you think about it, and with the different perspectives and the personal vantage points, feelings are more authoritative than facts. They're also a lot less threatening and a lot less confrontational than facts. And so even if you share a fact, people use that phrase. You have someone who's, who's doing substance abuse and you got to confront them. You wouldn't say, hey, you're being an idiot. You need to stop drinking alcohol. Let me help you. You would say, I feel like you're making poor choices. I feel like. Anytime you hear someone say that, again, that's, that's the postmodernism speaking. We see it in our music and our media. Anytime you see a hero that's no longer a hero or a villain that all of a sudden is no longer a villain, that's postmodernism. I read Beowulf when I was younger and then we had to read Grendel right after. And, and in the 1970s, the author of Grendel decided that this villain was not actually a villain. He was just misunderstood. In the 50s, Sleeping Beauty came out and you had Maleficent who was the bad gal. And then a few years ago, uh, some people decided that she wasn't actually bad. She was just misunderstood. Perspective. This is postmodernism. Now, it's not all bad. 
actually having different perspectives and different angles, different vantage points, understanding that you and I and other people approach conflicts and solutions differently, situations differently. It's actually really helpful. We all have different perspectives, and we can actually value the different perspectives people bring. I've been married 11 years, and I'll tell you, I've been trying to get my wife for years to, to see the per, my perspective. And when you leave the kitchen cabinets open behind you, it's so much easier to grab cups and put them away later. She doesn't value my perspective. Terrible postmodern. But in all seriousness, postmodernism has some good to it. The problem is when we take lots of perspectives and we equate that with lots of different truths. And that's the temptation of our culture, that when you combine non-confrontation with the existence of a plurality of, of different beliefs, that the desire becomes merely to just coexist because meaning and truth doesn't exist in reality, it merely exists within our minds. Now, Jesus doesn't say that he's a way. He doesn't say that there's lots of other ways. He doesn't say that, that you can get to God via Muhammad. He doesn't say you can get to God via those sacrifices. He doesn't say you can get to God through spiritual awakening. He doesn't say you can get to God. He, th th there's lots of other spiritual paths that exist in this world, and he excludes himself from them. And while postmodernism has done a lot to help and serve us, Jesus confronts it when he says, I am the way. Not a way, but the way. How do you get to God? Jesus says, not them, me. He didn't just stop with that idea that he's the way, but he says that he is the truth. Not just a truth, but the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. Now there's a famous analogy that's used when different people like to talk about how all religions lead to God. And I'm taking this analysis in part from a pastor and, and writer, Tim Keller. Some of you may have heard of him. And, and so it's the analogy of an elephant. And there's lots of people around. We're just going to leave this up for a moment. You have the guy on top who has, is, the, the, the uh, ear is, is, is waving around. He thinks it's a fan. The guy on the side thinks it's a wall. The guy on the back, it's a rope. It's a tree. It's a snake. The one in the front feeling the uh, tusk there, it's a spear. They're all blindfolded. And so people paint this as the picture of religious pluralism. This is the, the postmodern picture of religious truth, that all religions are merely like people blindfolded, feeling around their, their existence and experiencing God in different ways. But Tim Keller points out a problem with this, and I actually really, I really appreciate and agree with this. In order to use this analogy, you have to assume that you aren't wearing a blindfold. Get this. In order to use this analogy, you have to assume that you're not wearing a blindfold. In order for all the truths to be relative, you have to claim that your truth is objective and absolute. Irony. 
Habermas, a philosopher who happens to be a very fierce critic of, uh, of, of, of the whole postmodern movement, points this out as a contradiction. In fact, he would ask that if, is the statement truth is relative itself a relative statement? Think about that. If all truth is relative, is the statement all truth is relative also relative? There's a contradiction there. Some of your brains might be hurting. I'm sorry. Back to the elephant. The person claiming that everyone else has relative truth, the person claiming that everyone else is feeling the elephant is actually excluding everyone else from their view. What they're saying is that their view is correct and anyone who disagrees with their blindfoldless view is incorrect. The lie of religious pluralism is that it's inclusive because the truth of the matter is every worldview is exclusive. Every worldview. And the one who says that everyone is blindfolded and is feeling their way to the same God is they themselves just as exclusive in claiming their absolute truth as anyone else. That kind of inclusivity is a myth. It's a lie. And so, what does Jesus say? Jesus says he's not a truth. Jesus isn't the side of an elephant being felt as a wall. Jesus isn't the tusk of an elephant being felt as a spear. He's not the tail being felt as a rope. He's not a truth. Jesus is making the claim that with a blindfold removed, that he is the truth. And if someone can use that analogy and claim that they have absolute truth, as Christians, we make that decision if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he has the right to make that statement himself. Not a truth, but the truth. Now, some people push back, in particular with Islam, perhaps Judaism. Don't we all worship the same God? Well, you take something like, like Islam, for instance. Because you would go back, and interestingly enough, the United Church of Christ, in, in a statement issued years ago, they claimed that, that they worship the same God as, as Christianity, that there are denominations, consider themselves Christians, who, 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 who espouse this. And so what you have here with, with Islam, my question for you is how different does two gods have to be to be considered different gods? How different does your God and my God, how different do they have to be for them to be different gods? If you claim that your God is one person and I claim that my God is three persons, should we just say, oh, they're the same God? Is that different enough? If the ultimate aim of your God is, is obedience and the ultimate aim of my God is intimacy, is that different enough? If when your God reached out through Muhammad, espoused an attack plan in which the enemies would be taken out and my God came literally to die for his enemies on a cross, is that different enough? 
Or are those the same God? I understand that there's different sects, by the way, of, of Islam. And if, if, if you're a Muslim, I, I understand that. But is it different enough? Use my wife as an example. If I were to describe my wife to you, I did this a few years ago. If I were to describe my wife to you, she's 5'2", she's petite, Caucasian, got a little bit of Native American in her, two fifteenths. Um, that's a joke, um, office reference. Uh, she doesn't wear glasses. She's got dark hair. And if I were to go on and describe her, her name's Katrina, where she's from, and then eventually I showed you a picture. And this is the picture I showed you. How different would she need to be to not be this woman? At what point is she a different person? Is the hair enough? The race difference, is that enough? You'd be confused. It just wouldn't make sense. You look at the God of Islam and the God of Christianity and there's a lot of Christians who really want them to be the same so that we can embrace Muslims as brothers and sisters. But the, the truth is that, that we're talking about radically different gods who operate in radically different ways. Talk about our Jewish friends and family who read the Old Testament and believe in the Yahweh of the Old Testament, but who ultimately reject Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he means that he is ultimately the sacrifice. And to reject him is to reject God. What does Jesus say? I am the way, not a way, but the way. What does he say? I am the truth, not a truth, but the truth. And then finally, he says, I am the life. Not just a way of life, not just a provision of life, but the life. A couple chapters later in John, Jesus would actually say, I am the bread of life. Bread being this symbol of sustenance and satisfaction used throughout the scriptures. We get it in the Old Testament as well, in Isaiah in particular. That Jesus is, is providing an example to a people who are experiencing, experiencing spiritual famine, who are spiritually hungry, who are in need of sustenance in their life. And he's saying, I'm not just a bread. I'm not just a person who can bring satisfaction. I'm not just a person who can bring sustenance. I'm not just a means of life for you. I'm the means of life for you that our world is full of other ways and other truths, put those in quotes for sure, that, that, that promise you life, that promise you satisfaction, that over-promise and constantly under-deliver. We have those in our world as well. But that all of those aside, those are idols, Jesus comes and says he is the life. Not a way, not a truth. Not a provision of life, but the life. And constantly many of us think to ourselves, but isn't there another way? Is perhaps Jesus just one way amongst many? He doesn't seem to leave room for that. He closes off with a final 
pretty radical statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I already talked about how every worldview is exclusive, and Christianity is no more exclusive than every other religion and worldview. It's no more exclusive. But Jesus, while being exclusive in the sense that he is the only way, is nonetheless radically inclusive in the people that come to God through him. His inclusiveness is not non-confrontational. His inclusiveness is not some sort of watered-down, superficial, artificial coexistence. That's not the inclusivity that he's interested in. Jesus is radically inclusive because unlike everyone else, we truly get a picture of the different, terrible, unworthy, wretched, worst of the worst people that get to come to God from all sorts of backgrounds, not because of who they are, but because of who our God is. Jesus is radically inclusive. Getting to God is not based on your race, sex, or sexuality. It's not based on your background, what you've done or what's been done to you. Jesus is radically inclusive in that he didn't come for just the people who might fit neatly into these categories or fit neatly into into the churchy kinds of categories. We see Paul write to the early church about the kinds of different people that are united, included in this family under Christ, Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you were all one in Christ Jesus. These are people from different sides of the spectrum within society, brought together, included nonetheless, in all of their differentness. Jesus brings together people from opposite sides of the political spectrum. He brings people from opposite sides of the socioeconomic spectrum. Fill in the category There is not a movement that has been more radically inclusive in the history of our globe than the Jesus movement. And we see examples throughout scripture of the worst kinds of people being confronted by the life-transforming grace that Jesus offers. He says he's the way, the truth, and the life. He offers that. These are the kinds of people in John 4. We see that Jesus came for an outsider. He approaches a Samaritan woman at a well. Not only was she from a despised people group, she was, she was a woman, so she would have been considered lower status as a result, but she was all, also an adulterer, which is why she was alone at a well. And Jesus approached her, offers her abundant life, not because of how hard she tried, but because of how gracious he is. In Acts 9, Jesus confronts a murderer named Saul, or Paul, depending on whether you use the Hebrew or Greek name. A man who's responsible for seeing Christians killed. He oversaw the killing of the first Christian martyr recorded earlier in Acts. Jesus offers this man abundant life and missional purpose, not based on his mistakes, but based on Jesus' faithfulness. In Luke 7, a Roman centurion approaches Jesus asking for a servant to be healed. This man had played a role in the very empire that the Jews were looking to overthrow. The centurion represented everything their long-awaited Messiah came to destroy in their minds. This was an embodiment of corrupt, violent, earthly power. How do you respond to that? And yet Jesus heals his servant, marveling 
at the faith of his oppressor. This exchange was not about the power of Rome or its military, it's about the power of Jesus. Finally, in Luke 19, Jesus invites a traitor, a cheater, a tax collector to dine with him. This man's wrongs had not disqualified him. And despite all those whose wallets he had victimized, in this very moment, his own heart would become victim to a life-transforming grace that only Jesus could offer. Jesus is radically inclusive. Not artificially inclusive. Not non-confrontational. He is not shallow in his convictions. The only ones who don't get Jesus are the ones who don't want him. This isn't bigotry. This isn't narrow-mindedness. Christians believe that if you don't want Jesus, you don't get Jesus. And if you do want Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, the background that you come from, where you've been, how deep you've sunk, how much pain you've caused or been through. If you want Jesus, you get Jesus. Not just now, but forever. Now, Christians, we forget this. I want to spend my last point talking specifically to the Christians. Because as the world grapples with that question, is Jesus really superior? If they ask the question, is there really only one way to God? Because it seems pretty clear when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that there really is only one way to God. It really seems like he's saying that he is superior. But as people ask that question, they have to spend enormous amounts of time sifting through the Christians in their world acting like, they're superior. As people in the world perhaps wrestle with whether or not Christ's righteousness is enough for them, they have to deal with the distraction of Christians and all of their self-righteousness. So Christians hear this. Christians are not superior, just Christ. The crazy thing about Christianity is that one of the main points of the message is we're not good enough. As a Christian, you might meet an atheist neighbor who's more generous than you. You might have a Muslim friend who's more of a patient of a husband, a wife, parent, friend. You may have an agnostic coworker who's more gentle or perhaps doesn't have the self-control issues that you face. This makes sense. Christianity isn't for perfect people. And while we believe in a God that works in our lives and through our hearts to, to really change us into beacons of light and love in this world, we fully acknowledge that Christians are just as messed up as everyone else. And the truth is, we're not worthy. This is a truth that we've known since the beginning. The Roman soldier who approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 began by acknowledging that he wasn't worthy. A brash Jewish uh, fisherman named Simon who had become one of Jesus' followers began that journey with Jesus by acknowledging that he wasn't worthy. The man Paul, who wrote most of what we call the New Testament, acknowledges that he's not worthy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Did you hear this? I worked harder than any of them. That's what every other religion wants to offer. 
full you can be or do blank, you can have God. And, and Paul understands, I worked harder, I was doing just fine, but it wasn't me. It's just not enough. He says, not I, but the grace of God. And grace is a gift. Jesus is radically inclusive. And as Christians, we need to remember that we're not worthy. We need to get out of the way. Christians believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He's either right or he's wrong. And you can't cop out from this. You gotta pick. You can't have both. Either what he said is right or what he said was wrong. Either he was lying or he wasn't. Either he's Lord or he's not. Jesus does not leave any room for someone to say that all religions lead to God. Because if he's wrong, then at least Christianity doesn't lead to God. You have to pick. We believe that Jesus is who he said he is and therefore that he is the way to God. We believe that he is God become flesh, which he proved with public signs and miracles, culminating in a resurrection from the dead that we would say is historically verifiable. We believe that our rebellion against God, all of our rebellion against God creates a chasm between us and God, a consequence that we must face. And while every other religion, again, says that you have to do or be blank in order to get God, Jesus taught that there's nothing that we can do, which is why he came to live the perfect life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserve, so that those who put their trust in him, so that those who want Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter your background, actually get him. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're along for the ride, I would encourage you to explore what Jesus says here. Avoid the cop-outs. Is he right or is he wrong? Is he the only way or not? We believe Jesus is who he says he is. If you're invited by a friend, it's not because they're trying to annoy or pester you. It's because it's one of the greatest acts of love in fact, if you meet someone, if you're here, you're not a Christian, you meet someone, you find out they're a Christian, they've been your friend for a while, you have permission. One of the first questions you should ask them is, how come you haven't invited me to church yet? You really not like me that much. It's an act of love because we believe that the greatest way, that the greatest truth, that the greatest life is not found in pursuing all the false promises of this world, but found in pursuing the person, the one Jesus, who always keeps his promises, who never overpromises and underdelivers. Christians, if this really is true, then our call is to go as Jesus calls us and to tell the world, to invite them to join us in the way to join us in the truth, to join us in the life. If you have questions, reach out to us. We'd love to talk more. We invite you to come back over the next three weeks as we engage in three other tough questions. Ken, about a loving God sending people to hell. That's hard. A good God and suffering, that's hard.
Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can we take it literally? Come back and join us. We look forward to having you with us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to look at this tiny verse and to think about what truth is. And so, God, I would pray that you soften hearts to receive, Lord, to see who Jesus is, to see who Jesus claims to be, and to bring that alive within people. Lord, to move people, whether they're seeing or meeting Jesus for the first time or whether they're, they're seeing him in a new way after years, God, that, that we would be moved by who you are and that that would invade our lives, not just here on a Sunday morning, but tomorrow, but the next day on a Friday night. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.